Welcome back. That was beautiful singing. I could listen to that for a while. Uh, worshipful. I want to refer back to the uh, verse that we started with this morning and start from there and go a little different direction today, or this after this morning. In John 12, again, verse 25, it says, He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. So there's a direct relationship there between loving and losing, of losing and keeping or denying and keeping, and a connection between following Christ and ending up where he is and serving him. Now, if you would describe to me a servant, what would you say a servant is? Uh, I guess a servant is one who simply attends to the needs, runs errands, picks up stuff, accomplishes things, so that the master doesn't have to attend to that, or at least serve him that way. One who puts his hands and feet to another people's intentions. If you would describe this morning your relationship with God, would you describe it as a son or a servant? Uh, Is there a difference? Um, Some people debated that. I like the story of the prodigal son who was off in the distance because he had run from his father and wasted his dad's and his, his inheritance. And when he came to himself, he thought this way, I am so needy out here and so abandoned out here, if I could simply get back and hire on as a servant to my father, that would be good enough for me. I would go back and serve him, and he could at least pay me wages, even if I don't deserve what I had before. And so he went back with that intention, And he didn't get very far into his planned speech when his dad said, uh, welcome home. He made a party and said, this my son was dead and is alive again. And so he came back with the attitude that I am now a servant of my father. His dad said, no, you're still a son. I want you back as my son. God has many servants. I guess heaven is full of angels. I don't really think that when God created Men, he had in mind the same thing as just another doer of his, his uh, will as, a, as an errand boy to go and do things. What do you think the, the prodigal son did the next morning? Okay, my dad didn't hire me. I'm back as a son. I guess I'll go fishing today. Okay, since uh, he didn't really take up my offer, I'm going to, I'll stay in bed till 11 o'clock because it was a long trip yesterday. I think when he woke up the next morning, he was a son and a servant, both. And his life was like that. Welcomed back as a place in the family, but committed because of the love that welcomed him home as a servant to his father. Changed his life. That's a little bit how we are. If you would read in 2 Corinthians 5, there's a verse there that says in 15, 14, For the love of Christ constraineth us, Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. The constraining love of Christ, the logic of that love, uh, makes us want to be servants and live for him. I read of a case a few years ago in the Iraq war, you maybe heard of that, this Ross McGinnis from... I think it was Meadville, Pennsylvania, who was in an armored vehicle along with some other soldiers 
uh, traveling along a dangerous highway, and from a rooftop or somewhere close, someone lobbed a, a live hand grenade into their vehicle, and he saw it coming. He couldn't stop it, but he, he shouted the warning and then threw himself on top of it and covered it up, and it exploded underneath him and ripped him to shreds. But everyone else in his vehicle got away almost unscathed. And he has saved their life with that kind of an action. But what do you think the rest of them thought? Every morning they woke up. They go out and see a sunrise because someone else isn't there to see it. Or go home and see their girlfriends because someone else never will. And live a normal life because someone else gave theirs up. What attitude would be in them toward Ross and Guinness? There's something you just can't repay. But I'm sure they're committed to remembering him and honoring him the rest of their life. And that's the logic of love. That's what love does to us. When we are motivated and constrained by the love of Christ. Yes, we are sons. In, in Scripture, God refers to His people as His children. Usually, God's people refer to themselves as servants. Let's keep that perspective. We are accepted as sons. We have volunteered to serve the Lord and therefore be in this verse and be in that blessing. When we make that choice, many things change. One thing that should change is our expectation of what our life is going to be and what it's going to consist of. Why am I here? What can I expect from it? And Jesus said a few things that I think we should pay attention to and learn from and not forget. I'm going to read two verses here, one in Matthew 10, 24 and 25 that says, The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master, and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? So notice the relationship. The disciple is never above his master. It is enough that the disciple is as his master. Then there's another one very similar in Luke 6.40. The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. There's a lot of truth packed in there. A lot of things we could, we could compare and, and pick out. And I believe that when we speak of servanthood to Christ, it's not simply a go and do this and please accomplish this task kind of relationship. We are entering into an apprenticeship relationship with Christ. And this is very basic to understanding of serving God. It's not just doing things for Him. It's learning of Him and becoming as He, as His character would teach us and as He does. Discipleship is apprenticeship. I think today they still have apprenticeships. I know long ago they did where a person would hire himself out for seven years of his life and learn a trade by just working for free for someone that knows the trade well. And you could hire yourself out as a wheelmaker or a shipbuilder or a shopkeeper or a farmer or I guess whatever. And I guess they still have some now. But And he's under the tutorage and under the uh, teaching of the master carpenter or master whatever. He, he's working for free, but it's not a slave relationship. It's a student relationship. And the goal of an apprentice is not to blaze his own trail and to do his own thing and prove his superiority and personality and individuality. His goal is simply to become 
as much like his teacher as he can in seven years. That's the purpose. Now imagine coming to the point when the teacher would look at you and say, uh, I can no longer tell any difference between the wheels you make and the wheels I make. Uh, your welds are just as good as my welds. Uh, your craftsmanship is at the same scale as mine. At that point, he would say, well, it's enough. You've learned it. You've served your time. Uh, you're free to go start your own business somewhere. At that point, it is enough. Now, when God looks at us as his children, he has one very clear expectation. He's, in Romans 8, 29, he says it, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So God sees Jesus, and God sees us. And he says, here's my firstborn, and I want everyone in this room to be as much like him as we can be. That is the goal of the, of the Father. I know that our ideals for our life vary widely from God's ideals. You know, our ideal often is let's just get through life as comfortably as possible. Enjoy it as best we can. God's ideal is to get us as close to the image of Christ as possible in the next years of our life. We work to live. God works to mold us. We work to accomplish things. God works to accomplish things in us. We strive to please Christ, but God strives to form Christ in us. So all of that is part of our relationship with Him. And it doesn't matter the experience level. It doesn't matter the, the uh, importance of whatever I'm serving and doing. There will never be a point when you're not God's project and you're still being shaped and molded under the tool and you're changed into this image of Christ. Now, in this passage we read, there is a very under, sober understanding of what we should expect life to be. Now, many look at life and expect that life owes me a certain thing, a certain level of lifestyle or opportunity or respect or appreciation. And Jesus said... The disciple must know that he is not above his master. He's not above his Lord. He's not there. So whenever you feel life has failed you and hasn't given you what you deserved and hasn't lived up to your expectation, you need to remember who you're serving. You're serving the one that said he had no place to lay his head. And if you have a pillow, at least, that's more than what he had. And we are not given to expect and demand out of life more than Jesus had because he is the the example, the, now if we have more than that, it's nice, but we're not guaranteed that. If others look at you and call you the devil himself, don't count that strange, he says, because uh, that's what they call me. It's nice that they don't, but it's never guaranteed that people are going to look at us favorably and, and nicely. Now, I know that Christianity as a whole has become used to a certain acceptance, a certain respect, a certain place at the table in, uh, in influencing things. And often they've been used, willing to use carnal means to get it. But Jesus said, just know who you're serving and that you're not guaranteed something better than what I was willing to accept. And so we need to understand that life was not meant to entertain me. It was meant to shape me. It was meant to teach me. And Christ's words and experience are the foundation of that expectation. Now, in those two verses we read, those parallel passages, 
They said something a little bit differently. One said, it is enough that the disciple be as his Lord. And the other said, everyone that shall be perfect shall be like his master. So in one way we could look at that and say that Christ's likeness is the minimum requirement and it's the highest attainment. Christ's likeness is the minimum goal, it's the expectation, and it's also the highest honor we could ever hope to imagine. It's our ideal. So when we choose Christ, like we all should, we need to carry this understanding and this expectation into the journey that follows. Otherwise, your Christian life will often be disappointed because we're expecting something different than that. Now, if you read stories about some of God's best servants, you'll soon learn that God's servants are not born, they're formed. All of us are born with a similar carnalities and and basic impulses. If a person ever becomes a useful tool in God's hands, it's because of what God did. You know, you can study to be a preacher. You can study language and prepare to be a missionary. You can be groomed to be a school teacher. It still takes a mighty work of God to make you an effective one. And, and that's what we look for. George Mueller was a prime example, most of us know, but he was not born the George Mueller that we know. It was after a, a life of deep testing and faith and, and yieldedness and brokenness that he got to that point. Uh, Lillian Thrasher was another who started an orphanage in Egypt. She only did what she did for the Lord after some very hard choices. She was called there and went only after breaking off an engagement days before the wedding, deciding this was not God's will for her life. And she went over there and gave her life serving people that uh, were in desperate need. Effective servants sometimes blaze trails. Sometimes they move mountains. Sometimes they steadily serve in quieter ways. But always their effectiveness is simply a result of God's shaping through their willingness to be shaped. I'd like to invite you this morning to Jeremiah 18. There's a passage there that you're familiar with, but we can learn something from. In Jeremiah 18... God tells Jeremiah, you go down to the potter's house and there I will speak to you. Maybe Jeremiah was looking for inspiration. Maybe he had a Sabbath message to prepare for. But God said, I will speak to you there. You go down there and that's where I'll talk to you. And in verse 1 of Jeremiah 18, it says, The word which came to Jeremiah, which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house and there I will cause thee to hear my words. And I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel that seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot cannot I do with you as as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in my hand, O house of Israel. So Jeremiah went there and stood in the doorway of this potter's shop and just watch that familiar proceeding thinking God can I learn of this what are you showing me there and he saw the potter pick up the clay and put it on the wheel and and center it and lift it and crush it and get it started and he saw this thing taking shape under his his wet fingers turning and shaping and molding this this piece of pottery spinning that 
clay from the riverbank or wherever it was. And I'd like you to consider the aim of any potter as he goes about his work. And I should just ask, anybody here ever worked with pottery? I think a few people may have, but after watching a YouTube video a couple of weeks ago, I thought, well, this is something I should try sometime. You could learn a lot. Very interesting. But the aim of the potter, I think, is at least twofold, maybe more. Uh, first of all, to create usefulness from uselessness. You take clay from, I guess you can buy it nowadays, but you could get your own and form your own. You want to make a vessel that's watertight. You want to make a useful pot to put things in, said Pooh. And that's what he wanted to make. So he built this thing. That was his point. And in his mind, he carries a mental image of the final result. That's what he wants to do. And so he has a picture there, a picture of uh, a cup, a picture of a vase, a picture of a water pitcher, a um, flower pot, many things you can make with that. But not only just creating something useful, but to create beauty from ugliness. I don't think there's any, I guess some just do it for a living, but most people that work with pottery do it to make it beautiful, make it lovely, make it stand out. Something to remind others and themselves of creativity and beauty and something purposeful. And and that's what God wants to do. That's what a potter does. And so uh, he touches the clay and begins to work and this shape springs up off that wheel and begins to give the viewer an image of what is in his mind as he Puts this on on the clay. Now the potter is always the master. He is the decider. He is the one who does and creates and uses and shapes and pressures until the shape is right. The clay is the servant. He's simply there to form to, to do whatever the master wants to do. Uh, he is simply supple and obedient to the touch and pressure that's placed on him. But as Jeremiah watched, something happened. I don't know what happened. Maybe it was a tough spot that wouldn't smooth out right. Maybe the clay was a little bit too dry and cracked. Maybe there was a, something in it. But the potter realized that the moldability was not in it to finish whatever he was he was making. Um, you know, there's, there's common basic things you can do with pretty much any clay, I guess. And there's certain things you can only do with good clay. And whatever it was in his mind he wanted to accomplish was not going to be finished with the material he had to work with. And so he crushed it and broke it down. He did, not, he did not throw it out. He simply broke it down and was willing to try again. Now, thinking of what God does with our life, this is both an encouragement and a warning. The fact that he is willing to take a project he spent his attention and time on and crush it back and make it again is an encouragement because he is not willing to give up. And if I and my carnality have wrecked his plans and, and thwarted his ideals and ruined my chances by refusing to cooperate, I've made so many mistakes and, and ruined so much of my life, God doesn't throw me back in the riverbank. He's willing to crush, to try again, and give it another chance. Now, maybe it won't be the finest vase on the shelf. Maybe we have to choose something a little lesser than he first had in mind, but... He will do something beautiful and he will do something useful if we allow him to finish. It will serve and give him pleasure. But the fact that God is willing to crush and break should also come as a warning, shouldn't it? If my life has taken a form it shouldn't have taken, 
has, has bent in a direction it shouldn't have gone, or my headstrong ideas and my focus just has not been his focus and his ideas. If I resist and don't learn and refuse to cooperate, and if my vision is not his vision, in his love he may crush and break down and start over. The insistent love of God is willing to see me crushed rather than see me thrown out as useless. He is willing that I should have another chance and that he should too. Now when a potter takes clay, there are several things he's concerned about. These are things we can probably learn from. Maybe, maybe Jeremiah thought of this. He didn't write it, but maybe he thought about it. But when you go to make something on a potter's wheel, you don't just grab a shovel and go to the garden and scoop up some stuff and throw it on the wheel and start. The clay itself requires a lot of work before it's ever started to form anything. There's a process. There's screens it goes through. I don't know how they do it, but clay is screened. You can screen it at different finenesses. Uh, make sure all the junk is out of it, but also make sure that the clay is all a similar consistency. They have to knead it to get the air bubbles out because there's little tiny microscopic bubbles of air in there that if it's not kneaded and gotten out in the firing process, they will cause cracks and cause this not to be a functional thing at all. And it would not be workable. It has to be moist. But the concern of the potter is the nature of the clay I'm working with can it hold up to the shape and the use that I, I want to make it into? And so there's a working going on in the clay itself. He's concerned about the shape of the piece. He has usefulness in mind. He has beauty in mind. He has a certain function in mind. And I'm pretty sure, although I've never tried it, I'm pretty sure that a master potter has no trouble with that when the clay is right. He can do that if the clay is the consistency that it needs to be. The potter has many tools at his disposal and he can apply pressure wherever it's needed, but the shape of the piece happens because he knows how to make it happen. Third thing he's concerned about is the firing temperature. I guess it gets fired a couple of times. One in baking the pottery and then you have to bake the glaze on, if I'm not mistaken, maybe a couple of times. But different clay has different grades to it. It has to be hot enough so it doesn't just shrink and crack when it's done. And it can't be so hot that it'll just simply melt and run in the oven and just deform under heat. And we say yes to God and we come to God like we need to from that first message. We do it willingly. We want to serve Him, but we have no idea of the ideas He has in mind for us and what He's going to do to get us through this, this process. We look at our talents, our resources, and say, we can really use this for the kingdom of God. If we could just stop serving the devil and put this to use in the kingdom of the Lord, what a beautiful thing I would be. God looks at our character and looks at the clay and wonders how much work would the clay itself take before, before the uh, vessel is made. And God screens it and needs it and fires it. We're always looking at our service to Him as a project I'm involved in and He always looking at us as the project that He is making and the process it takes to form us. Now the potter's clay has no will, but when God breathed his breath into human clay, he gave it a will. We have this will. We exercise this will. And the most useful thing I can do in this whole process is simply yielding that will to the potter's will and saying, okay, you make it. You do it. 
I will accept, accept the shape my life takes under your forming influences. Two of the, two of the most useful servants in Scripture give a detailed example of how this formation process took place. I wish sometimes it would say more, but Moses was the first one. Scripture says that Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. He took 40 years soaking up the wisdom of Egypt, and he was as equipped as any man could make him. And he made this daring rush at attempting to, to do God's will and free Israel. He, he made a bold rush at the work that God was calling to, and, and when it failed, he just backed up and ran. Uh, one try was all it took, and he was, he was over. He was washed up. He was hunted down, and he left. He went to the desert, and for the next 40 years, it was God's turn on the backside of that desert. He was day by day on the pottery wheel of God, being formed and shaped and, and trained for the next thing. Now, God used many tools for him. Uh, one thing that he used was simply this rejection that he felt when he tried and they said who made you a ruler over us and who called you down here anyway and he left with that stinging assessment of his attempt God used monotony the boring sameness of life I read a description one time of what life is like in the Sinai Peninsula or across in the uh, in Saudi Arabia so hot and so dusty and so dry and so same day after day after day uh, the stench of sheep and the awkwardness of sheep and the ongoing. You know, the Bible certainly says anything from the end of Exodus 2 to end of Exodus 3. There's 40 years there between when Moses got there and met Jethro and when he met God at the burning bush. 40 years and, and not a mention. And maybe it's because there's just nothing in there to mention. Life in the desert is just the same day after day and the same responsibility and the same thing just happened. By the end of those 40 years, the former Moses was crumbled and instead there was this sober and quiet and thoughtful Moses. This Moses that was uh, not nearly as self-confident as he once was. And there was a long road from the, the basket in the Nile River until he came back and turned the river to blood. It was a long road from, from leaving the palace to coming back to confront Pharaoh 40 years later. But those were years on the wheel, years on the refiner in the fire. And he went from the, I can handle this kind of Moses, to the Moses said, I, I, I can't even speak, Lord. I don't know what to say. From the returning in the fear of God after fleeing in fear. You see, the Moses that left Egypt 40 years earlier was all about glamour and style and, and what I can do. But the one that came back was all about the glory of God and the good of His people. And at that point, He was ready to do His will. That was one of them. The other one is Jesus. Now, we don't usually think of Jesus in formation. We read a little bit about Him when He was born, a little bit about Him when He was 12, and then again when He was about 30. That's how Scripture skips, skips those times. But we do get one little glimpse of something that God must have been doing, and I, I'm not sure how to explain this all, but in Hebrews 5, 7, it says that who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he suffered. 
And though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. How do you explain that without detracting from the, the divinity of Christ and the perfection of Christ? Uh, Jesus was born perfect in character, perfect in moral excellence, in holiness. But could it be that in his that his experience and submission to human authority came through, through a process of development. I'm not sure if that's what this verse is saying. Was Jesus a perfect child? We sing no crying he makes, but I sort of doubt it. Um, did he ever use his wisdom in ways that... I don't know. I don't know. It says he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And being made perfect. In other words, polished off and finished... And properly refined and complete, he became the author of eternal salvation. And none of that we diminish the, the divinity of Christ, but he did live an earthly experience. And even Jesus had 30 years to repair for his three years or four years of ministry. Now one difference between the experience you will face and the example of the potter's wheel is that on the potter's wheel, everything must be done chronologically. You, you can't begin to turn something before the clay is prepared. So you do that first. You prepare the clay, and then you put it on the wheel and turn it. And then you put it in the oven, and then you glaze it, and then you go out and use it finally after all that's done. But in the making of a servant of God, all of this can happen simultaneously. It can all happen at the same time. So if you accept the Lord this morning, you can be useful right now. You can be useful now. You can... Encourage people, you can bless people, you can serve people. Um, the usefulness does not wait for all the refining fires to happen in your life. That means that most of us would probably be useful for about the last two weeks of our life. Um, the screening and refining of the clay and character also does not stop when the molding begins. See, when the, the clay gets on the wheel, well, that's been taken care of, and now it's time to make something. But even as you're being used and being molded, your character keeps being changed and, and, and added to and shaped. And the shaping of your gifts and the air of your service continues even as you are filled and even as you are serving. You, see, you can't do that on the potter's wheel, but these things all happen in the life of a person who is committed to be a servant of God. And as a child of God, we can never predict his methods. We can never explain his motives or reason out the thinking of God. Sometimes things happen. We just have no way of knowing why and what for. And we can simply say, well, I've chosen to accept my place on the potter's wheel or this is what he's using to do something in my life and I'll accept that. In hard times and in sad times, Paul said, we comfort because of the comfort that God gives us in our hard times. So those things equip us as well. But there's a couple things we can know. One thing is that God is as concerned as, about his vessels as he is about the task of the vessel. And so if you're a school teacher, God is concerned about your class, but he's concerned about you. If you're a, a pastor, God is concerned about your church, but he's concerned about you. If you're a youth leader, if you're a Sunday school teacher, everything, this is true. I was a teacher for a while in Guatemala. 
And as far as I was concerned, I was doing a very noble thing. I'd accepted the challenge of teaching in Spanish, a room full of undisciplined Guatemalan children that, that tried my patience on a daily basis. And uh, I tried everything. I had unruly students. I had uncooperative parents. At the end of the first year, I thought I'd been through the mill. And then they asked me to do it again next year. And I decided, well, I, why not? I'll try it one more year. And I thought, I'm really serving God here. I'm doing a very hard thing. And, and, and you know, pat me, because who else would do this? But as I look back, I now would say, what a tool. What a tool in my life, because what I did for them may have been very little, but what they did for me was probably one of the bigger shaping methods that God was using in those couple of years. So that we can be sure when we think about God's working. God does not create evil. That's the other thing I want us to know. God does not create evil, but he will never waste a hard experience in my life. That's why we can say with confidence, all things work together for good to them that love God. So God does not, you know, kill children or uh, introduce temptation or do things that make us have a hard time. But he will not, use, not miss a chance to use that for our good when those things come to our life. We look back on the good times and we sure like them, but it's probably the hard times that made the biggest impact on our formation. And that's part of the process. So the potter's vision, our potter's vision, is to make us like Jesus is. And I'd like to take you yet to 2 Timothy 2. There's a passage there that, that takes this analogy to the next level and uses the same example, I guess, in a way. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. So this is the, the logical outcome of what we've been talking about. We've been talking about formation, but formation lends itself to use, and that's the logical flow of this understanding of the analogy. So here we are, looking at his example of vessels in the great house, and now they're shaped, now they're finished, now they're on the shelf. And the concern of God is now, which one of these will be useful in the thing I want to accomplish? Now, if you look at this verse... And think about your house. Uh, think for a minute of all the things you have in your house to hold things. All the vessels. There is a huge variety, especially in our day when we can get them so easily. Um, but in all those things, there's, there's two differences. In, our, in, this, in this scripture, it points out two differences. And Paul's not writing about dishes here. He's writing about people. The one difference between every person is in every vessel is a distinction in beauty and quality, things that we would look at as, as uh, valuable because of what they're made of. Here it mentions gold and silver, wood and clay. Some are big, some are small. And uh, 
Did you ever wonder in your house why certain things are made of certain things? Why certain things are kept in the china cabinet and some are kept under the sink or above the stove? They all have a purpose and they're there for a reason. The second distinction here is the honor of use. He says they, they're distinguished by their material and they're also distinguished by their honor or dishonor of use. Now I know that in your house as well as mine, there's some things you would use things for and other things that you wouldn't. And I could give you examples of that. I like to use the example of a stainless steel bowl we have at our house. It's something we keep under the stove for multi-purpose use. And uh, if something needs scrub, we'll go for that bowl. If something needs, if there's a stinky rag that needs to be Clorox for a while, that's the one to grab. If there's a sick child that might throw up any minute, that's what we get to set inside the bed. That's what it's there for. You would never catch my wife serving you soup or salad or any other thing out of that bowl. Even if it's washed, it's just that that's for that use. There's other things for this use. A basic example of that. Uh, I enjoy drinking coffee. I had a coffee cup. I don't know how you do it in the morning, but when I go for my first cup, I look for the, the, the perfect cup in the cupboard. I'll just grab any old cup. You probably don't either. There's a certain shape, certain feel, certain handle thickness, a certain balance. I don't know what all it is, but that's, that's the one you go for. Well, I had one one time, and it fell out of the truck. I, I believe in open carry. I carry my coffee cup into the truck without a lid wherever I tend to happen to be. This truck, uh, this, this cup fell out and hit the asphalt and chipped right out of the rim of this cup. I picked it up and tried it, and sure enough, the chip fit right where my lips would go, and it, it worked just fine. <laughs> it was still my favorite cup. Well, it fell again, and the handle broke in about three pieces. And so you get the epoxy out and carefully glue this $2 cup back together again and, and try to make it as good as you can and keep on using it. And then it broke again, and it sat in my fridge for a couple of years and finally got thrown out because I couldn't fix it. Had to find a new, new perfect cup. In my mom's shed, there is a vessel that if you saw it, you would wonder why we kept it. It is a, a metal kettle, about this big around, about this deep. It is the blackest, most dinged up, um, damaged little thing you'd ever lay your eyes on. But... This has a place of honor in our family because this was my parents' tea kettle way back in Canada, up in the bush when they would make their tea over the open fire out there in, in the bush. That was the tea kettle. And so when they brought it back, this sort of had a place of honor in our family. Sometimes it's gotten out and, and used again just for old time's sake. Now those two distinctions that this verse mentions, the quality of material or the honor of use, which, which is more important? Which is more important? You know, we tend to think that the, uh, the better the material, the more honorable the use. You know, the more beautiful, uh, sometimes, but not always. Sometimes that way. I've, I've seen silver ashtrays I wouldn't eat out of. I've seen uh, nice flower pots I'd never try to cook in. Uh, but I've had some pretty good coffee out of plastic cups and pretty good meals out of, you know, simple things. When God looks at us and sees the beautiful and the plain and the, the uh, outgoing and the in, introvert, he sees the, the uh, attractive and the practical, is that what he cares about? 
He's looking for someone to use in his work. But he cares about deeper things than that. What's it like on the inside? Uh, how much devotion is there? How much honesty is there? How much availability? How free from sin and from self-life is this, this vessel? And that to him makes so much bigger difference than what things look like on the outside and what life is made. See, what God cares about most is not what life has made you to be, is not what has been handed to you, not the parentage or the school or the experiences. It is the commitment, the devotion, the honesty, the walk with the Lord. That's what God cares about the most. And he is looking for a vessel to be used. And there's a process here that he used to make us meet for his use. There is a purging that has to happen. There is a sanctification that has to happen. There is a willingness that has to be in place. When those things are in place, I don't think there's any vessel that couldn't be turned into something useful and, and valuable in his work. I believe it's, it needs to be that way. Um, now, I've already hinted that I enjoy drinking coffee. Sometimes. Um, one thing I don't enjoy is yard sales. Sometimes my wife and I will be driving down the road and if there's a yard sale on this side, I'll say, hey, look at the cows up on the hill over there. Look at that. See if she'll miss it. If I ever happen to stop at a yard sale, what I don't like is those tables full of glass stuff, old dishes and things. I, it doesn't really matter. But every now and then, there is a yard sale with coffee cups there. And so it might be worth my time to walk over and just take a quick look and, and just check on anything there that you know, might be attractive, useful. And what if there is one there that just fits the taste and the need? It's my style, it's my shape, it's my color. It's, I would like that. Um, so imagine that a little bit. I find that. I pick it out. I pay for it with my own 50 cents and make it legally mine. And then I take it home. And the first thing I'm going to do is wash it and then use it. Now it's really mine. And the rest of the useful life of this coffee cup until it falls out of my truck and breaks is usefulness and cleansing and usefulness and cleansing and usefulness and cleansing for the rest of his life. That's basically what it's going to exist for. Filling and emptying and washing. I believe that's a pretty good picture of what God intends to do with me and you. He bought us, cleansed us, uses us, prepares us, fills us, and uses us. We're always hopefully pouring out and being poured into. And that's what we're supposed to do. Now, we tend to a couple of streams here in our service to the Lord. Uh, Some of us struggle with extreme self-confidence. And others struggle with extreme worthlessness. A sense that I can really do nothing well enough to be valued in anybody. But Paul makes this observation in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, it says, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Now, if you struggle with self-confidence, and I can do this, and I'll have no problem with this, I'm the gold or silver one, Here it says, at our best, we are but vessels of clay. That's what we are. That's what life has made us. If you struggle, like most of us probably do, with more of a sense of worthlessness and helplessness and 
lack of ability. We can also take comfort, and here it says that even vessels of clay are filled with a treasure. Filled with treasure, and that's what makes it valuable. It never ceases to amuse me, I guess. When at 19 I left this youth group and went down to Guatemala, I was the rawest material and uh, about as shy and inferior and, and as farm boy as you can imagine. And of all the people he wanted to remove from here was the shy one. Of all the people to go to Guatemala was the one that hated Spanish and hated public speaking, and, and he decided to, to do that. And I got down there, and a, a few weeks after I was there, a board member met me and spoke to me a little bit and went to another person and said, I don't think that one's going to make it. This, this, this isn't going to work. He doesn't have what it takes. But I'm just, I guess, amused that God was so patient and, and molded that, that rawness. See, the, the, the honor of the vessel is not the material it's made of as much as the willingness to be used. Not the charisma, but the spirit that he could fill us with. The use of a vessel is simply to be poured into, to pour out of. Uh, that's the only way we can serve. That's how Jesus served when he was in the desert and he was tempted and fasted. He came back and was baptized. The Spirit came upon him and God acknowledged him. And he came back with the power of the Spirit from the desert. And with that infilling, he went out and poured for the rest of his ministry into all the needs he met, all that came to him. Uh, this overflowing of grace and wisdom and poured this out. And that's a little picture of what we're called to do. We come to him to get our little vessel filled from his big one and we go to pour it out into those, those that need it. And that's a picture of the, the, the serving relationship between our king and our area of service and use. And uh, I would suggest this morning that there's only two things that can hinder you in your service to God. First, if you refuse to be cleansed, you will never be used. If you're willing to stay filled with the old self and refuse to release your will, you will never be useful. And the second, if you refuse to be used, there's only, that's the only thing that can keep you on the shelf. If you refuse to be cleansed and refuse to be used, you'll just sit there and sit there and sit there and never do anything worth doing in the kingdom of God. If you say no when you're asked, if you avoid inconvenience at all costs, if you avoid hard things, you will sit there for a long time. If we can overcome those two barriers, there's no one here that couldn't be a useful vessel in the kingdom of God. I was told this story years ago. I'll share it with you in conclusion. It made an impact on me. Uh, three army recruiters came to a high school to share their, their pitch, their their, I guess their plea for young people to sign up with their branch of the service, somebody from the Army, somebody from the Navy, somebody from the Air Force, or Marines, I guess. And so the first one stood up and took 20 minutes trying to convince all these young people why they should consider signing up with the Army. The second one took 20 minutes. They were supposed to have 15. They took 20. And the Marine had five. And so he stood up before this group of young people and stood there quietly for about three minutes just looking at people's faces and looking at people's expressions. Then he said, there's only two or three of you in here that has what it takes to be a Marine. I want you to, to visit me in my booth afterwards. 
And I guess my question this morning is very simple. If Jesus came looking and, and, and exploring and, and seeing the vessels in this place, would he look at you twice and say, here's the one I can use? And if you can't, what is it? Unwillingness to be cleansed or unwillingness to be used? Which is it? I think God's been preparing us all our life for whatever we're doing now, and I believe he's preparing us right now with what we're going to be doing next. It doesn't matter if we're gold or silver. What we are, what matters is that we're a vessel unto honor, set aside for his use. And that's how service begins. God bless you this morning.